Hello, everybody. It's Pastor Adam again, and excited today. Got a word from the scriptures today that will empower us, will get us over whatever is our issue and remind us of our purpose and destiny. So let's go to God and acknowledge him this day. Father, we are thankful for this day and that we're here and we know you have a purpose for us. And Father, we want to align to get uh, with you on that purpose so that your will be done in our lives. And we thank you for your grace and mercy, your strength, your power, your love, your justice, And most of all, that you gave us a way to have relationship with you forever through what your son, Jesus Christ, did for us when he died on the cross, was buried, and rose, and is ascended. And we thank you in the name of Yeshua Yamashiach. Amen. All right, so I want to dig, today I'm just going to dig right into this. And uh, here we go. And we're in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, starting with verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Woo, okay, so here we go. So in these scriptures right here, these scriptures are encouraging us to pray that our hearts may be enlightened so that we would know hope, that we would know who we are as God's inheritance as well as God's power. And before jumping into the description and discussion of this power, we need to first recognize that this power from the Lord is for us. You know, as as we're going through this passage, we've got to be ever vigilant and that we keep our mind, right? Keep in mind that, that everything we're hearing, this power that we're talking about is for us who believe. Now, I titled this today, Power Aid. You know how these drinks will have like aid, something aid, you know, they have a drink called power, all these things. Well, this is, this is God's spiritual power aid. We've got to grasp this. And so everything we're hearing today is to understand that is to give, this was done to give us power. Way too often, we don't believe this is for us. We think it's for the them, whoever the them is, and never us, right? It's that other person. They will say it's somebody that has a microphone. Oh no, the fivefold ministry, right? Or that person or this person or whatever, but certainly not me. I want to dispel that myth. That's a lie. You've got to grasp this. Now, have you ever listened to someone try to describe something they are really, really excited about? You know, something that's just completely amazed them? You know, they'll say things, it was great, it was awesome, it's incredible, amazing, stupendous, unbelievable. You know, words like that, right? It's like we will, you know, when you do this, I, I know, I think I've done it. I, I don't do it as much because I watch myself on this, but, but I've done it. But I think so many of us do it. It's like we pile up words, one on top of the other, in order to try to convey some of our sense of excitement and enthusiasm. And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? And I'm telling you this because scripture does the same thing 
here in the second part of verse 19 that we just read. And the words start piling up as, uh, as there is excitement describing this power. And we, we kind of lose some of the sense of building excitement in our translations, in our English translations of the scriptures, but the words are there nevertheless. Power, the words, you'll, you'll read power, might, strength, exerted, but I think we kind of miss the building sense of enthusiasm. Yeah, I, I kind of like the message translation, I think captures this feeling a little better than a lot of the versions in verse 19. Message Bible says in, in Ephesians 1 verse 19, oh, the utter extravagance of his work in us who trust him, his endless energy, his boundless strength. There, see, there is like an exuberance here, an excitement as the topic shifts to describing the power of God for those that are reading. And that excitement overflows onto, uh, into verse 20, where God's power is demonstrated in two ways. The, the two greatest examples of the power of God at work. In Ephesians 1, verse 20, you know, Scripture says, He exerted... This power when he raised Christ from the dead and seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So the first example of the incomparable great power of God is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So, you know, I mean, I think we could be like quantitative. They're like, how much power did that take? I mean, remember that Jesus' resurrection was very different from when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus' resurrection was temporary because Lazarus was still going to die. He was going to die a second time. But in Jesus, we do not have a temporary defeat of the power of death, but a permanent defeat of the power of death. Permanent. He defeated it forever. In the resurrection of Jesus, we have an eternal life, a resurrected body, a deliverance from the permanence and hopelessness of death. This is the power of God which raised Jesus Christ from the dead is, is, as the victory. It earned a permanent hope in a new order. It provides a bridge back into a relationship with God that gives us hope for eternity. All because God raised Jesus from the dead. The moment of Jesus' resurrection is the great turning point in history. From a very low, desperate point when it seemed that all hope was dead and Jesus' claim to be God's son was in doubt to one of victory and triumph of God's incredible power over the Satan and over death. I mean, I think you know this, but let me remind you that scripture tells us that this same power is for us and lives in us. That's Romans 8 verse 11. Okay, so that's one example from Ephesians 20. Here's the other. The second example of this incomparable great power for us is the exaltation of Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of God. I don't, I don't think we talk about this, about this aspect of what Jesus did for us as, as much as we do about Jesus' death and resurrection. But let me just reiterate, it's, a, it's very common in scripture for the reign of Christ to be linked to Jesus' death and resurrection. It simply completes the process, right? Jesus died. God raised him from the dead. Now he's enthroned in heaven. But it, I think it's critical for us in understanding what is happening now. Who is in control now? What, and what Jesus' role is and what this means for us. The, these remaining verses here in Ephesians 1 elaborate on this idea of the reign 
of Christ and spell out for us what it means that Jesus has been exalted. You know, it's important to acknowledge how the excitement of the power of God points directly to Jesus Christ. Think of all the experiences that the writer Paul, for instance, thinking about Paul, what he went through. He, He had seen people healed in miraculous ways. Paul had been shipwrecked and delivered from the water. He'd been delivered from the bite of a poisonous snake. He had been delivered, he was, as well as he was around when people were casting out demons, he was casting out demons. Remember the time Paul was preaching one-on-one, you know, like us preachers will do, pastors will do, you know, and he's, and, and, and I mean, what, what, we'll just be talking on and on and on and on. We don't stop. People get upset. How come he's going so long? What happened? A young man fell asleep. And what happened to him? He fell out a window to his death, but he was raised from the dead. Paul went out and the power of God was on Paul to raise this guy from the dead. Acts chapter 19, verses 11 and 12 tells us that while Paul was in Ephesus, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. But here, when Paul gets caught up in describing the power of God, what does he talk about? I mean, does he list all the miracles? No. No, what's going on here in Ephesians is he's talking about Yeshua. He's talking about Jesus. And that's not to imply, I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying Paul wasn't excited about those miracles or tried to downplay them or tried to explain them away or minimize them. No, no, no. The point I'm trying to share is that Paul held up against, held up, against the resurrection of Jesus Christ, these miracles, that these miracles pale in comparison to the resurrection of Christ. Because with Paul, he's, he's given us the, he's pointing us in the way because we're supposed, he focuses on Christ. Everything leads to Christ. It exalts Christ. It points people to Christ. That's the point of the power of God. To exalt Christ, to lift Christ up, to recognize Christ as the ruler above all. Too many times we seek the miracles and not Christ. Remember, Paul wasn't a follower of Jesus during Jesus' life on earth, right? He wasn't there when Jesus taught, died, and was resurrected. Though Paul did not meet the risen Lord, I mean, though he did meet the risen Lord on the road to Damascus, I think Paul is more like us in that he heard about Jesus from someone else. And yet still, Paul is focused on the cross and the exaltation of Jesus as the ultimate demonstration of the power of God. So I hope we can see this model that we are to emulate from what Paul is saying here. In other words, when you and I see God move in power around us or through us, it should take us to Jesus. It has to exalt Jesus. It has to proclaim Jesus to the world. It's not about us. Not about the things God has done through us as if we're so great and spiritual. No, it's about Yeshua. It's on him that we need to be and stay focused on. The power of God is for us. The purpose of knowing that power is to bring us to Jesus and keep us there, okay? Amen? Hallelujah, all right. 
So as we continue reading these scriptures, we see the topic moves to Jesus' reign in heaven, where we see the power of God through our reigning Lord Jesus Christ in action. Ephesians 1, 21 through 22 again. It says right here, here it is again. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Okay, so this is what would have been particularly encouraging, I think, to the people in Ephesus and the other cities this letter was sent to because, here's why, because they lived in a highly spiritual culture. What am I getting at? Well, if you do your research, if you know a little bit about what was going on when these, during this, this writings, you know, in the, the early, early first century, there's a lot of magic practiced in Ephesus, right? There is a huge temple to a goddess named Diana, Artemis, and a lot of spiritual rituals, a lot of sorcery, a lot of divination, a lot of witchcraft. So the words rule, authority, power, and dominion refer to spiritual forces as discussed later in this book in Ephesians chapter 6. And take note that Paul claims Jesus is not only stronger than this or or that he is over them, but that Jesus is far above them. In other words, we don't have to fear because Jesus, whom we know, love, and serve is far above any other spiritual force, right? Jesus reigns. So, I mean, in other words, let's stay focused on Jesus and know that he is stronger than any rule, authority, power, dominion, demon, or temptation, right? Let me, let me try to explain this in a brief story. Okay, so suppose you're living in an apartment and the landlord has made your life miserable. I mean, his, his, the rent he charges is exorbitant. I mean, and when you can't pay your rent, he loans you money at a fearful rate of interest to get you even further into his debt. At times, he's barged into your apartment at all hours of the day and night, wrecks and dirties the place up, then charges you extra for not maintaining the premises. So, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to describe that your life is miserable because of this landlord. Then out of nowhere... Someone says, I've taken over this apartment house. I've purchased this. You can live here as long as you like. Free. In other words, the rent is paid up. I'm going to be living here with you in the manager's apartment. So I'm sure by the, oh my gosh, what a joy. You're saved, right? You're delivered out of the clutches of the old landlord. But what happens? You hardly have time to rejoice in your newfound freedom when a knock comes at the door. And there... He is the old landlord, mean and demanding as ever. He has come for the rent, he says. So what are you going to do? Do you pay him? Of course you don't pay him. Do you go out and beat him up? No, he's bigger than you are. But what you do do is you confidently tell him, you'll have to take that up with the new landlord. Now, he's probably going to throw a fit. He's going to grumble. He's going to complain but you just continue to keep your cool and you quietly tell him, take it up with the new landlord. Even if he comes back a dozen times with all sorts of threats and arguments, waving legal looking documents in your face, you simply tell him once again, 
take it up with the new landlord. And in the end, he has to. And you know what? He knows it too. He just hopes that he can bluff and threaten and deceive you into doubting that the new landlord will really take care of things. Okay, so that story is my way of trying to display the situation of a Christian. Folks, once Christ has delivered us from the power of sin and and the devil, we can resist in that deliverance for eternity. But here's the deal. That old landlord will soon come back knocking at your door. And what is is, is our defense? How do we keep him from getting the upper hand again and again? You send him to the new landlord. You send him to Jesus. Oh, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, right? When Jesus Christ truly, truly now takes charge of your life, right? Takes charge of your minds, brings every thought captive to him. We are in this process of developing, becoming spiritually invincible. We have, we're operating with supernatural power. We walk under God's complete control, okay? Hallelujah. And then we get back to this verse, uh, these scriptures in Ephesians chapter one, verse 22. It says, the scope then is broadened. The scripture says, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. I mean, God placed Christ and put everything under Christ's control. Everything is under him and he's head over anything. Not only the spiritual forces are under Jesus' control, but everything. I mean, another reference to this is in Hebrews chapter two, verses eight and nine. You'll find the same theme. Jesus has everything under his feet and everything is subject to him. But the book of Hebrews, this writer here in Hebrews adds an important thought that should help us understand how Jesus can be in charge when our world and our experience so often makes it seems like nobody is in charge. Oh, listen to this, folks. If this doesn't apply to the nonsense going on in our world right now, follow along. Hebrews chapter two, verses eight and nine. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Oh, hallelujah. Now, the sentence I want to point out is the last one in verse 8. It says, but now we do not yet see all things put under Jesus. Everything is under Jesus' jurisdiction, but we can't see it. And why is that? Because if you can't see it, you're not, you don't have the same perspective God does. I mean, we can't see two minutes down the road, yet two months, two weeks, 20 years down the road. We can't see how all the verse parts fit together, but we can believe that they all fit together. We can believe that God has everything under control, that God knows what he's doing and that it is for our good that Jesus is reigning over everything. Everything is under the Lordship of Christ. Everything that happens is somehow a part of God's great plan for the universe. Now I confess, I don't understand how that translates for anyone who is struggling to regain a, you know, a measure of health. If you've got a health issue or, or for the family with a young one undergoing you know, chemotherapy or any injustice that seems to be going on in this world. And there is a bunch of them. 
I, I'll further say, I do not understand how God can be in control and have everything under Jesus' feet when things like that happen in someone's life. Because you know what? I'll guarantee you this. It sure doesn't feel like God's in control when all these terrible things are happening. But you know what I do do? I say a big amen to Hebrews 2.8 that says, at present, I do not see everything subject to Christ. I have faith. I exercise my faith. I believe God is in control. I believe he knows what he's doing and, it's not, and he's not just winging it on a whim. And I believe that someday it will all make sense. We will see how God was in control all along. But in the meantime, this faith that I'm talking, right? This faith I have does not mean that I sit by idly and simply resign myself to everything that comes along. Or do I... Uh, want to encourage anybody listening to adopt a fatalistic attitude that just accepts whatever happens in life without fighting it and struggling against it with all your might. On the contrary, folks, knowing that God is in control, that Jesus reigns, that gives me the courage and strength and boldness to fight against all that is wrong and that causes suffering. Why? Because I know that Jesus is victorious, that the same power that raised him from the dead and exalted him to the place of ruling over everything is for me. And I know that he has commanded me to fight. He has commanded me to resist that old landlord banging on the door. He has commanded me to do everything possible to treat illness and to fight against pain and suffering, to help the widows and the orphans, to help the poor. I fight because I know the battle has been won. Jesus has been victorious and has defeated the powers of death and the Satan. And so when an arrow flies in the battle, I don't simply relax and let it hit me in the head. I raise the shield of faith and charge ahead, knowing by faith that the battle is all in God's control and to know that God has it all in his hands. And that as I obey his word and his spirit's leading in my life, I can trust that God is in control and his power is available for me. God is sovereign over everything. Though at present, I'll admit, we can't see it, but we can believe it. And we can act like we know it and we can draw strength to continue on and overcome while we're still here. Hallelujah. And then continuing on in Ephesians 1, we read that Christ is head over everything for the church. Here, let's pick it up again in Ephesians 1, verse 22 and continue on. And Jesus put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's just an amazing discourse right there. Jesus Christ as head, right, and is reigning over all is, you know, I guess amazing enough. But then to read that he is over all things for the church that's another level of amazing. And look at how we're described. Just so you're not, look at how we're, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's how we're described. He, we're described as the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I, what I'm getting at is that is an incredibly high view of the church and how God sees the church. And what's the church? The body of Christ. And what is the body of Christ? You and me. We, who are the church, are the purpose of Jesus' reign. Jesus' reigning as Lord is for us. 
And we, who are the church, who are the ecclesia, who are the congregation, who are the assembly, are filled with the fullness of Christ. And, and here's something to take notice of. I'm not sure if you're aware of, but I want to point out. There are no qualifying words here. No clauses in this that say, ideally, the church is, to f- is filled with the fullness of Christ or at its best or the church is supposed to be. Uh-uh. This is what we are. It's plain and simple. The church, that's, that's you and I, is filled with all the fullness of Christ. Do you realize that? If we get united, what we have? If we just could unite. Oh, but no, no, no. I just, you know, it's frustrating for me. I just don't think that most of us have as high a view of the church as God does. And I think that's because we see a human institution. We see what is tangible and what is around us rather than the spiritual institution. We need, we, and we tend, we tend to focus on the human institution, on various opinions, on the appearance of the building, or on the amounts in the budget. Now, all those things are valid, folks, and without them, we cannot function. I, I just, there's no doubt about that. But they need to be kept in a proper perspective. They need to be properly prioritized far lower than our understanding of the church as the body of Christ filled to the fullness of Christ. Hmm. I know many of you probably have said the same thing I'm going to say. What would our church look like if each of us believed and lived that fact that we, the church, the very body of Christ, are filled with all the fullness of Christ? What in the world would that type of church look like? What would it feel like? What would our priorities be? How would we care for one another? <clears throat> you know, let me, let me take a different view of this. I'm not suggesting that we're a long way off. In fact, I think that there are many ways as a church that, that met, some churches do live and believe this. But there are also some ways that they don't. There are some ways that they focus just on the human institution and forget the spiritual reality. Some ways that we focus on our needs and wants rather than letting God be in control. So I believe this today, these scriptures call us to an extremely high view of the church and calls us to ensure that Jesus is Lord. (coughs) That way that we keep Jesus as the head over everything. See, if we don't lose that perspective and lose that lens, And you know what? It is the assembly. It is the congregation. It is the ecclesia. It is the church that God has chosen to reveal his power to the world. Because the church is full of the fullness of him who fills everything in every way so that we can know God's power. So all divine power and glory found in Christ is also to be found in the church. So we began today by asking to keep in mind during you know, this description of the power of God, that we would know this incomparable great power is for us who believe. And talking about the power of God for many of us is one of those things that is outside our comfort zone. Actually, I guess it is not so much talking about it as it is thinking about encountering the power of God. I think many times we're just like the Hebrews 
When Moses comes to the mountain and they're like, I don't want to go up there. I don't want to go up there because the mountain's roaring. There's lightning. There's thunder. There's the smoke, right? They don't like, no, 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 no. I don't want to get that close to him. And I think that's where we tend to get a little bit more nervous when the power of God actually starts to manifest. And I think the root of this fear and concern are more specifically a fear that you and I will not be in control. That's why we don't want that. Oh, or maybe, we'll even take it further, that we might end up looking foolish or silly or maybe undignified. <clears throat> I wonder if we avoid God's power because we're not really sure what will happen and we're afraid to let Jesus be Lord and be the one in control. I think history proves we have some misconceptions about the power of God and some powerful misconceptions at that. And it's those misconceptions that keep us from knowing the power of God. I, I mean, folks, I know there are some that think the power of God has to be manifest in some weird, wacky, supernatural way that is strange and obscure that will make us total fools and humiliate us. Mainly because there are those that teach that and display that for all to see. So some assume it's going to be painful. Some believe, I think, that it'll marginalize us, pushing us to the lunatic fringe, if you will, in our culture. Maybe you listening today have had negative experiences with people talking about the power of God. Well, I want to say this. I want to say the obvious, that those misconceptions are exactly that. They are false ideas of what God wants to do and needs to do when we let him be in control. <laughs> so what are the right ideas? Scripture teaches clearly that when we are open to God, letting God be in control, and we seek to be obedient, the result will be the fullest life possible. Now, I grant you this. It may be a little strange or different than you're used to. Maybe it will be miraculous and maybe it will be supernatural. And guess what? People already think you're foolish. Well, some are going to continue to think you're fool regardless. You know, or maybe we will just live lives of quiet yet powerful obedience until the end of our lives. But here's the deal. If you do that, your life's going to be full. It will be powerful. It's going to be peaceful. And Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full, right? John chapter 10, verse 10. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, we will receive power to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. Paul taught that the result of a spiritual controlled life is what? Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. <laughs> I say it again. The power of God is for us. Studying the life of Christ is incredibly instructive when we are thinking about God's power and how people respond to it. At the beginning, the miracles and signs and wonders are very attractive, right? Scripture shows us people wanted to be around Jesus, right? They wanted to invite Jesus to all the parties. They wanted to listen to, they went to listen to all his sermons because the power of God is attractive. But then there's a shift, when Jesus begins to teach some things that become very uncomfortable, he begins to talk about repentance. What? He's telling people he's the son of God. He says that if anybody wants to follow him, they had to surrender everything, leave their fathers and mothers, and take up their cross daily. <laughs> I mean, in John chapter 6, right after Jesus has fed the 5,000, a bunch of people chase Jesus to the other side of the lake, right? Looking for more miracles and another free lunch. And Jesus says to them, he goes, yes, I'm the bread of life. 
You know what he did right after that? He started talking about them having to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And they grumbled and went away saying, this is too hard a teaching to comprehend. And this, what Jesus was doing, continued to the very end when even most of Jesus' closest disciples deserted him at the cross. So what is my point of saying that? This is the point. The power of God in Jesus Christ has as its only purpose to bring us closer to Jesus and to change our life and make us more like Jesus. And you know what? That is a very hard road. It's the road less traveled. But it's the road that has the fullest life. There is a reason we call demonstrations the power of God, of the power of God, signs and wonders. They are signs because they're pointing to Jesus and his kingdom reign. They validate Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 22 that we just read. By demonstrating that Jesus is in control and is still directly active in the world today. And right there is the main point. The main point is not the signs and wonders, but what they point to. It's not the miracles, but it's the source. We wonder, folks, not at the manifestations, but at Jesus, whom they glorify. I believe as strongly as I possibly can that the purpose of the power of God is to change lives. It's to remake us in Christ's image. And honestly, we shouldn't care how God chooses to do that. In other words, we should be more excited by evidence and growth and love than by any outward manifestation of power. We should be far more affected by the testimony of someone whose life is changed by God than by the method God used to change it. We shouldn't care so much about how God chooses to speak or move or display his power because as far as I'm concerned, that is totally and completely up to God. But what we should care about is that people grow in love for God and for each other. What I really care about is that our lives are changed to be more obedient and more Christ-like and more empowered to live effectively in our world as the vehicles God used to have authority over this realm. I welcome, I embrace, I think many of you do too, any means that God chooses to make that manifest. A constant prayer that I have is that God would be free to move and to work however he chooses to draw us closer to him and that we'll be receptive to it. Here's the last thing I want to say on this today. You know, in our quick fix, pill-popping culture, we want and expect the power of God to be instantaneous, to fix whatever is wrong immediately and miraculously. And you know what, folks? Sometimes that actually manifests. Again, though, the purpose of the power of God is to change our lives, to make us like Jesus. And that kind of inward transformation almost always takes more time than we like to admit. It takes the power of God working overtime to conform us to Christ's image. It's like planting a garden, folks. It's not like flipping a switch. The results are measured in lifetimes, not in instances. 
So you got to ask yourself, what is holding you back from experiencing more of the power of God? What is keeping you from allowing God to be Lord of your life just like he is of all creation? Just want to encourage you. I want to exhort you to hold back no longer starting today. God bless you all.